The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bible to John's Gospel, John chapter 7. I'm going to read the last section of chapter 7, beginning in verse 40, all the way through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, it might be easy to skip over this passage of Scripture. After all, you, you look at it, there's no red words. You notice Jesus doesn't say a single word in this final section of John chapter 7. You ask, why is it here? Why is this part of Scripture here? All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired for a specific purpose. Why did God, through the, through, um, the Apostle John, put this Scripture here? What's its purpose? Well, I want to submit to you that these verses are very important, incredibly important, because they explain the response to Jesus' ministry. These verses explain what the response is to Jesus' ministry, not just at the Feast of Booths 2,000 years ago, but the response today. What is the response to Jesus? And I would submit to you that the response to Jesus is division. It's division. The universal effect of the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this world today is division. I want you to look at verse 43. Look at verse 43. So Jesus has preached. Remember, he's given this wonderful teaching that if anyone thirsts, let him come to him and drink. Those are in the verses above. And you see the response. Look at the response amongst the people. There was a division among the people over him. J.B. Phillips paraphrases that verse, the people were of two minds about him. 
And this statement is true wherever Jesus preached the gospel. There were always divisions, and there are, are always divisions, much as the modern church doesn't want to admit this. The modern church doesn't want there to be a division between the church and the world. The modern church wants to be at peace with the world. And that's why, literally, they're waving the world's flags. But Jesus came to bring division. That word division, it's a very important word. It's schisma. You could translate it S-C-H-I-S-M-A into English. It's where we get our word schism or schismatic. A schismatic is a divisive person, if you did your SAT vocab prep. But what Jesus is doing is creating a division. That's the effect that he has on the people. And that's not because Jesus is a curmudgeon. It's not because Jesus is, is, is being unnecessarily rude or mean. It's because when Jesus makes statements, he makes exclusive truth statements. For example, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We all like that. No one's going to get angry at you for wearing a t-shirt that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the next part of the verse that people don't like. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the exclusivity of Christ that people don't like. But that's the real Jesus. That's the real Jesus. The real Jesus made statements like this, Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not with me, you're against me. You remember William Barrett Travis at the Alamo? Right before uh, Santa Ana's army attacked, he took out a sword and he drew a line in the sand. And he said, if you're going to stay and defend the fort, cross the line. But if you're not, you got to go. There's a line in the sand. And when Jesus came, he put a proverbial line in the sand. That's his message. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, Jesus came to force a decision. Remember Billy Graham's magazine? Decision. You, when the gospel is preached, when Jesus is really encountered, the real Jesus, there's that moment of decision. The real Jesus presses you to a decision. Will you follow him? Will you submit to him as Lord, or will you reject him? And this is how the apostles understood all of reality. They understood all of reality in light of people who had either received Jesus or rejected Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's one realm, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So that's the reality that we live in. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're either in the kingdom of darkness. You're either a disciple of Christ or you're an unbeliever. You're either righteous or unrighteous. You're either a Texas Aggie or a Texas Longhorn. Okay, we could, you could draw illustrations here in North Carolina, but I don't want to get in trouble. But one school does have devil in their name. In Wake Forest, the demon deacons? Oh, 
Okay. I want, I want to show you this, Matthew 10. Turn over to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. And first, I want you to notice how Jesus draws the line in the sand. Look at verse 32, Matthew 10, 32. Here's the line in the sand. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's the line. You either receive me or you deny me. There's no middle ground. Now look at this. This is the clarifying statement, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. That word bring, that's a, that it's translated bring, but, but that's a light way to translate it. The Greek word is balo, and it's where we get our English word ballistic. Ballistics is the study of launching things. Jesus is saying, I came to launch I came to throw, I came to hurl a sword. That's why I came. I came to bring, not peace, but division. Here's the clarifying statements on this. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So your enemy will be within your own house. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So there's the line in the sand, and Jesus is saying, look, I came to bring this division because people are forced to make a decision about me, and you have to love me more than your family. You have to love me more than son or daughter. So this is the reality of Christianity, and this is so clear if you turn back to, to John 7 in this passage. What you see as a response of Jesus' marvelous preaching is division. First, in verses 40, to 45, you're going to see division amongst the people. And then from verses 46 to 52, you're going to see division amongst the religious elites. So first, you see the division amongst the people, beginning in verse 40. Look at verse 40. Remember there at the Feast of Booths, this is uh, closing it down. This is the very end. This is, this is their response. When they heard these words, the people, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And that word, the article, the, in front of prophet is very important because what this is in reference to is a prophecy that Moses made about an ultimate final prophet who would come and be, and be the Messiah. Now, there was some confusion about this in the first century because some apparently thought that the Messiah and the prophet were two separate people, but they're not. They were the same person. Uh, if you would, turn over. I want to show you this. 
to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Turn all the way to the left to the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is the prophecy that Moses made about the final prophet who would come. This is a fascinating statement he makes. He says, the Lord your God, and he's talking to the people of Israel, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen now listen, uh, some people don't think of Moses as a prophet, but Moses was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, the greatest prophet. Moses, remember, was given the prophecies that he gave to Pharaoh of the plagues and told Pharaoh, if, if you don't repent and let the children go out and worship in the wilderness, God is going to bring the frogs, the gnats, the, the, the flies, all of that. So Moses is making prophecies. Moses is an oracle of God. He speaks for God. Really, all other prophets of the Old Testament are footnotes to Moses' ministry. And what's fascinating is Moses, remember, goes back into Egypt. The ten plagues happen. The Passover happens. The death angel comes. Pharaoh finally says, go, leave. They go out into the wilderness. They go through the Red Sea. And you remember where Moses takes the children of Israel? Right back to Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, that's when God gives the children of Israel the Ten Commandments through Moses. And when that happens, if you go read Exodus chapter 20, lightning is hitting the mountain. There's thunder. There's fire. And they even heard heavenly trumpets blowing. And then they begin to hear God's voice. And the children of Israel said, we can't take it. We feel like we're about to die hearing the voice of God. So, Lord, just speak to Moses and then have Moses speak to us. Let Moses essentially be our mediator. And this is what in verse 16, this is what Moses referenced. He says, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's the mountain of God, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now he's talking about this future Messiah, this final prophet. And notice the line in the sand, verse 19. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now notice the connection between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is the mediator of the word of God. Who is Jesus? He is the Lagos, the Word of God. He is the mediator of God to us. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was this mediator, this final prophet. If you would turn back to John 
chapter 7. Now, many of the crowd believe this. They believe that he was this final prophet, but they didn't put two and two together that he was also the Messiah. Now, look at verse 41 of John 7. He said, others said, this is the Christ. So, some actually realized that this was indeed the Messiah, and they, in, they believed in him. If you look over verse 31 of this same chapter, it says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So, they made the connection. They understood that this man was the Messiah, and we'll come back to these people. But, some said, and these are probably the Jews that live there in the city of Jerusalem, and they were prejudiced against Galileans. They said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, there was a division amongst the people over him. So, in the midst of this teaching… You see that some had spiritual sight, while others failed to connect the dots. And you see in this last group, the crowd is misinformed. Clearly, they don't have all the facts about Jesus because they say the right things, don't they? They say, Jesus is from the… He's, the Messiah is supposed to be from the line of David, which Jesus was. That's Psalm 132, 11, 2 Samuel 7, other scriptures… They said, we know he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. Everybody knew that the Messiah was supposed to be from Bethlehem. Do you remember when, when Herod called his advisors and said, where is the Messiah supposed to come from? They said, well, Micah 5.2 says he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. Aha, send, send everybody over to Bethlehem and look for the Messiah there. Everybody knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And of course, Jesus was all these things. He was the son of David. He was born in Bethlehem, the problem was is that the crowd didn't know all the facts. They didn't have all the information. Jesus moved to Nazareth to fulfill another prophecy. Isaiah 9 said that Galilee of the nations would be blessed and that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So, it was in fulfillment of another prophecy that Joseph and Mary would raise Jesus in Nazareth, and that Jesus would have His ministry in Galilee. But notice verse 43. This is the linchpin of the passage. There was a division among the people over Him, and some of them wanted to arrest Him, but no one laid hands on Him. So, you see the extent of this division. Some believe He's a, he's a great man, He's a prophet, but not the Messiah. Some believe that He is the Messiah, He's the Christ, while others can't stand Him so much, probably the Jews in Jerusalem, that they want to arrest Him in line with what the Pharisees want. The Gospel of John over and over and over again explains that until it was Jesus' time to be arrested and crucified, that no one would be able to lay hands on Him. But what's important to note is this division over Him that there was a division over what he taught and over his person. There's a pastor in Texas named Afshin Ziafat. Some of you have probably heard him preach before. His family left Iran in 1979 when the Shah was overthrown, and his, his father 
was a physician and moved the Ziafat family to Houston and began a medical practice there in Houston. He was a practicing Muslim. He raised Afshin to be a Muslim. And when he was a young boy, he had an English tutor who was speaking him to teach English because all he knew was Farsi. That English tutor gave him a Bible. He was a little boy. She said, when you're older, she said, just save this. Don't tell anybody about this. Just save this. And when you're older, start reading it. So he put it away in a drawer and put some, put some clothes over it. When he was a teenager, he remembered that Bible, went and got that Bible out, and he started reading it at night underneath the covers with a flashlight. And he started reading the book of Romans and came under conviction, started to see who Jesus was as the righteous Son of God who died in our place for our sins. And about that time, a friend invited him to an outreach event at Tallawood Baptist Church in Houston. And he went to that event, and there was an evangelist who laid out the gospel. And that night, he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. But he didn't go home and tell his dad. But eventually, his father found out. His father found out. And he said, you can't be a Christian. You've got to choose. It's either me or Jesus. Because I will not raise a Christian boy. He said, well, Dad, I don't want to choose. I I don't want to choose, but if you're asking me to choose, I have to choose Jesus. I have to choose Jesus. And his father essentially disowned him. His father said, well, I don't consider you my son anymore. And I had the privilege of serving on his staff. He later on went and became a pastor, and I served on his staff for a couple years in Texas. His father ended up coming back years later and reconciling to an extent. But there was a great sacrifice there. There was a great sacrifice. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Is he saying that moment of decision comes and you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior and then everything changes for you. Everything changes for you. You're no longer closing down the bar with the guys anymore. And they're asking, what's wrong with you, man? Where are you at? You're supposed to be with us. What are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm going to a Bible study. What? Are you kidding me? Or you're no longer dating that guy anymore. Why not? Why aren't you dating him? Oh, he's not a believer. Well, when has that mattered? Well, it matters to me now. Because Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked. I need, to, I need to marry a Christian man. Well, that starts to alienate people that don't understand the Christian worldview. Why are you like this? You're not trying to cause division, but Christ has put a fork in the ground in your life. And this is what happens. This is the division that we're seeing amongst the people. But the question is that I want to ask you this morning is, have you crossed that line? Have you crossed that line where you are all in with Christ? Or are you straddling that line and you have one foot in the kingdom of light and another foot in the kingdom of darkness? You're like that 
soldier in the Civil War who showed up to the battle in gray pants and a blue shirt, where you're trying to be on both teams, have you truly decided to follow Christ and taken up your cross, where you're on His side? Now, the narrative shifts to the religious elite and the divisions amongst the religious elite. If you look at verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. These officers that they're referring to in verse 45 aren't Roman soldiers. These are essentially the temple guard. These are, the, these are Jewish um, patrolmen, basically, that kept law and order in the temple on behalf of the chief priest and the Sanhedrin. And so, the Sanhedrin, the officers, had essentially given these men, you feel like, an impossible task. The crowd is hanging on Jesus' every word, and they have told them to go and arrest Jesus. This is similar to General Lee telling Pickett to take the middle ground at Gettysburg. Remember, it was a mile uphill. Pickett's charge on the last day. There's no way they could have done it, and there's no way these men could go and arrest Jesus with the crowd all around Jesus, many of them believing in Him. But there's another reason why they're not successful, and you see it in verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. What had happened is this, is they had encountered raw unbridled spiritual power, and they were spellbound by it. Remember, John the Baptist said that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit without measure. When he spoke, he spoke very simply. You, you read his teaching, it's very simple. Not, not big, challenging words, very simple. But he spoke with authority. When he spoke, people stopped what they were doing, and they listened. No one ever spoke like this man. And whenever Christianity has advanced in the world, there's always been that spiritual dynamic that accompanies it. This is what, this is what the, the world outside the church doesn't understand, is that the true church is a spiritual church. It's a spiritual body of Christ. It's a spiritual entity. And when the Word of God is actually taught, the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. And people come under conviction. People are born again. Change happens. Peter says that we are born again through the imperishable Word of God. So Paul said, for example, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When the Word of God is taught, like Jesus was doing, Jesus was proclaiming literally God's Word he did it with the anointing of the Spirit, and people came under incredible conviction, and they, and they saw things clearly, the world as it really is. 
I remember I used to serve on staff at Buck Run Baptist Church in Kentucky, probably the last church a terrorist would want to attack because the, the church was armed to the hilt. Literally, it was a 200-year-old church that had been planted on a creek, little creek bed called Buck Run. And the pastor of that church is a guy named Herschel York, just famous Kentucky preacher. And I served on his staff for a couple years. And he had this event called Magnificent Monday. And he would do these periodically throughout the summer. And he would invite guest preachers in for Magnificent Monday. And I remember one time he invited this Scottish preacher to come down from Cleveland named Alistair Begg. And I'll never forget, Alistair came in and he announced that his text was Daniel chapter 6. And he started preaching. And I was sitting just, they had a, almost like a, a wraparound rotunda auditorium. I was sitting right over here on this side, second row. And I remember thinking, what this man is saying about the sovereignty of God and God's power and God's holiness. What he is saying right now is the most important thing being said anywhere in the world. And it wasn't because it was Alistair, although the Scottish accent certainly helps, but it was because it was the Word of God I remember the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I just sensed that power of the Holy Spirit at work, lifting up the name of God and the honor of God. I read a story about uh, RAF pilot in World War II. He was in London. His name is Tom Allen. And Tom Allen wanted to go to Westminster Chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach. This is 1943, during the Blitz. And Westminster Chapel had been bombed. Literally, a bomb had come through the ceiling. And so the congregation was meeting in some type of fellowship hall uh, back behind the, the main sanctuary. And he wandered into the fellowship hall, and he said it, it came time for the service to start. And, and he said a, a little man who he assumed was a deacon, not Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, basically came up to the pulpit, announced the text, and started speaking. But here's the thing. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He just thought it wasn't because of his demeanor and the way he carried himself. But he said this. He didn't know who it was, but he said, for the next 45 minutes, I forgot everything else in the world except for what this man was saying. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God. It's an arresting power. And that's the encounter of every true believer who's trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's some point in your life where you were going along. Maybe somebody said, hey, come to this Bible study. Hey, come to this church service. Somebody put a track in front of you. Somebody sat down in front of you and said, hey, let me walk you through the Roman road. At some point in your life, you encountered Christ in a spiritual way. He grabbed hold of your heart. Where before you were going one way, and now Christ grabs you, and now you're going the other way. And you can't explain that. It's just like these men. Why didn't you arrest them? Why didn't you bring them here? No one ever spoke like this, man. We, it's just raw spiritual 
authority. And the glory of God astounds you in the word. Well, the Pharisees know nothing of this, nothing of this. Look at their response. They answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? You almost have to say these words in a pretentious voice, don't you? Uh, Notice their spiritual pride. I mean, they're not even there listening to Jesus. They're not exposing themselves to him. But they, they answer, have you been deceived? That word means to be led astray. Uh, have you also been led astray? And then they say, look, look, at, look at this pretension. They say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? None of the, none of the smart people have actually believed in him, they're saying. Jesus can't be the Messiah because the, the smart religious people haven't believed. You've been deceived. Well, in reality, the opposite is true. They are the ones who have been deceived, and they're the, the temple guard are the ones who've encountered this spiritual power in Jesus. But you see here one of the great difficulties of being an elite. This is one of the great difficulties of being an elite, especially in academia, because when you're an elite, there's a consensus. There's a consensus that forms. You even see this. Have any of the Pharisees believed in him? There's, there's an implied consensus amongst the Pharisees. And it's the same, true, it's, it's the same that's true today in, in modern academia. This is why ideas that have been continually disproven, like Darwinism and Marxism, continue to be taught. Because if you cross that line, that consensus in academia, you're put on the outside. You're no longer part of the academic guild. You're no longer part of the academic society. People start questioning whether you should have tenure or not. It's very difficult to break a consensus, but oftentimes the consensus is wrong. Oftentimes the consensus is wrong. And that's why great academics have the courage to break the consensus and make that next discovery, to push, to push past what all the other scholars say is true, and then what happens later, they give that guy a Nobel Prize, and everybody lauds him, even though at the beginning they were yelling mean things at him, right? That's, that's, how, that's how things move forward. And the consensus here is absolutely wrong. And notice what they say about the crowd. Verse 49, this crowd does not know the law, and they are accursed. So, so the crowd, the hoi polloi, they're the ones that, that don't know anything. They, they're the ones that are cursed because they've listened to Jesus. Uh, they've seen the signs. They've made the connections. They've believed. So here's an important lesson. Here's a very important lesson. Normal man or woman with their Bible often has more wisdom than the religious elite. The farmer who knows his Bible under the conviction of the Holy Spirit has more wisdom than the Ivy League academic. I sat down with my son Charles this week, and we're looking at the book of Proverbs. I said, son, if you know this book of Proverbs, if you master this book, you will have more wisdom than most of the presidents who have led this country. Because this is where wisdom is found. 
right here. The, the electrician armed with the Word of God is infinitely wiser than those teaching theology at Duke Divinity. My great-grandparents were named, they're both departed many years now, Truman and Verna Lee Castleberry. Truman and Verna Lee Castleberry never went to college. They were cotton farmers. They lived right on the Red River and where the Pease River meet. I know Craig Fitzgerald, if, I don't know if Craig's here this morning. Craig's family lived right on the other side of the Red River. So our families knew each other, believe it or not. But they lived in, picture wide open plains. This was Comanche territory. At the, on the Pease River was where the Texas Rangers recaptured Cynthia Ann Parker, who had been captured by the Comanche. So that battle happened not far from where my great-grandparents lived. But just to give you an idea just about how backwater they were, when my grandfather, when it came time for him to go to college, they just drove down to Baylor, and they didn't apply or anything. They didn't send an application in. They just drove down to Baylor and assumed that he could start taking classes because they were members at the Baptist church. So they went down to Baylor, and, and they had to call their minister to come down and, you know, try to get him in and all this stuff. But they, they, they didn't know any, anything about higher academia. They were members of a little Baptist church two miles south of their farm fields called Oakville Union Baptist Church. It's closed now. The building's still there, but church is no longer there. And they farmed. They were simple people their entire lives. And when my great-grandfather died, when Truman died, there's a a hill right on the Red River. It's probably the tallest point in the county, in Wilbarger County. And he said, I want to be buried on that hill. So he passed away, and they went and put a fence around the area to to mark out a a cemetery on the top of that hill. And my granny, Verna Lee, uh, made a sign. She, She asked a welder in town to make a sign to put on the top of that cemetery, and she asked my cousin to go pick it up. My cousin goes and picks up the sign and and gets the sign, and all it says, it's a big sign, huge sign, and it just says, amen. Amen. That's the sign for the cemetery. And he goes to, to Granny, why amen? I mean, that's it? Amen? And she says, it means If God says it, so be it. That's who we are. If God says it, so be it. It's the Amen Cemetery. And so they put that sign right on the top of the cemetery, and they buried Truman there, and on his gravestone, she put John 3.16. And she said, that's the Castleberry verse. I was thinking, I don't know if we can claim John 3.16. I think other people might have tried to claim that, but she claimed it, so don't try and claim it for y'all. That's, that's, our, that's our family verse, John 3.16. And I think it's been put on every tombstone of every Castleberry that's been buried in the Amen Cemetery. So quite a few have been buried since then, including, including her. But my point being, simple woman, simple man, never went to college, but they knew God, and they knew their Bible, and in the kingdom of God, that's the only thing that counts. 
Uh, Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So oftentimes it's the poor, it's the uneducated, it's the down and outs, it's the people that you least expect that hear Jesus' message and come to saving faith. But sometimes, sometimes God does save one of the elite. Paul was this. Paul was one of the elite, and Paul was saved. And, and here in verse 50, you see that one of the elite God is drawing to himself. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus, you remember John chapter 3, he came to Jesus by night. He was a Pharisee. He was, he was part of that religious order. But though he was one of their rank, he was now not one of them spiritually. I think something had happened to Nicodemus because by the time we get to John 19, he counts himself as one of Jesus' disciples and goes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus' body. You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he asks him questions about the kingdom, and Jesus says, you must be born again. That was a reference to Ezekiel 36. It was a reference to the new covenant. And Nicodemus said, I don't know what that means. And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You don't know what the Old Testament Scripture has said about entering the kingdom of God? Well, obviously, he'd thought about that. The Lord had been working on his heart. And here, this, this conflict is happening, happening amongst the, the religious elite. And, and Nicodemus doesn't come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. I'm with him. He doesn't do that. It's much more subtle what he, what he says. He says, does our law judge a man? without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, what he's saying to the Pharisees, and by the way, the Pharisees prided themselves on keeping the law, but the reality is they didn't keep the law. They're pronouncing judgment on Jesus, and he hasn't even had a trial yet. In the Old Testament law, if, you were, if, if a judgment was going to be cast, you had to be tried. There had to be hearing, and there had to be two witnesses. None of that has happened yet. And Nicodemus is saying, we're, we're in violation of the law. We're in violation of the Old Testament law and how you're casting judgment on this man. Notice their response to Nicodemus, verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, the, just with this subtle suggestion, they in their jealousy and scorn, launch out at Nicodemus in their passion. They basically identify him as a, as a Galilean. And what they said is, is remarkably untrue. Notice they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, maybe this is in reference to the prophet and, and, and uh, prophecies uh, regarding the, the Messiah, in which they too are confused, but they don't say the prophet. They just say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In actuality, many prophets had come from Galilee. In fact, some of the greatest prophets had come from Galilee. Elijah was from Galilee. Elisha, Amos, 
Jonah, probably Nahum. They were all from Galilee. So in their hatred and envy, they're making just silly errors in their judgment. So here we are now, end of John chapter 7. What are we to make of these divisions? Let me just give you three practical points to think about. What are we to make of these divisions? First, do not be surprised when divisions occur. Do not be surprised when divisions occur. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. You lay it out. You sow the seed. But do not be surprised when there's a division. I talk to people in the church all the time, and they, they say, my brother, he's of a different worldview. We are polar opposites. They're here, and I'm here, and it's really hard. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said it would be. He said there will be divisions. So, you need to know that's not on you. That's on what the Lord has done. The Lord has changed you. He's brought you into the kingdom, and that's why the division is there. That's why the division is there. Now, we shouldn't be unnecessarily spiteful. You know, those, you know, those, those Christians are like the guy when he was discovered on the deserted island. He had three houses. They say, you know, tell us what the three houses are. He said, well, this is my house, and this one's my church. And they said, well, what's the third one? He said, well, that's my old church that I used to go to. We shouldn't be unnecessarily divisive, but we should know that divisions will come when we speak the truth. Second, second, if you're a Christian, remember that salvation is all of grace. The reason why you are where you are is because God did something to you, and God did something in your life. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. So the fact that you are where you are isn't because you were better than somebody else. It isn't because you were smarter than somebody else. It isn't because you were more virtuous than somebody else. It's because God drew you into the kingdom. God did a work in your life. At some point, God put somebody in your path in divine providence who brought the message of the gospel to you, and guess what? God opened your eyes to the truth. So all the glory is to be to him. And third, third thing to remember is that you have a responsibility to bring the message to those who are in darkness. Sometimes I talk to people, and they think that it's just the pastor's job to evangelize. I hope you're not one of those people. But don't worry, I'm not talking about somebody in this congregation. But some people think it's only the pastor's job to evangelize. No, no, no. It's every Christian's job to evangelize. Every Christian has a responsibility to bring the message, to win some. Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might win some. Romans 10, 14 and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So this means that, look, there, there are divisions. There, there are divisions. But our job is to go fishing and fish for people on the other side. 
Our job is to win some. Yes, they might be against us right now, but so was Paul, right? So don't forget, just because somebody is on the other team, don't write them off. If they're on the other team, it means that we need to win them to Christ. So this means that you need to understand the gospel. You, mean, you need to be able to have a, a reasonable way to sit down with somebody and walk them through the plan of salvation and know how to get in those conversations so that we might win some. Listen, we were all once part of that kingdom of darkness, and someone brought the message to us. And so we have to bring the message to others. Now, that could cause division, right? If they don't receive the message, if you show up at Thanksgiving dinner, you bring the message, and some don't receive it, there might be division. But what did Jesus say? I came to bring the division. That's fine. That's fine. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these last verses in, in John 7, and just we see the, the reaction to your message. And we pray, Lord, that we would see the world as it really is, that there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, and that you're fine with that, and that you are calling sinners to yourself from that kingdom of darkness of who we all once were. We all once walked under the power of the prince of this world. We all once walked in blindness, but you and your grace shown the light of the gospel into our hearts that we might see the, the face of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And we believe, we thank you, Lord, for, for that reality. We pray, Lord, that we would have the boldness to proclaim the truth in this world. This is what is needed, Lord, so desperately, is unashamed workmen to declare the gospel, which is the power of God under salvation. So we, may we proclaim this message, Lord, knowing that divisions result but knowing that those divisions, Lord, are part of your ultimate plan. Let us be faithful. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.